Welcome to a special edition of Polite Politics. Noah Niederhofer here with Jenny Tayer. We have Dan Karish and Dan Rosenfield joining us. Uh, let's let's go one by one so they can introduce themselves to everybody. We will start with Dan Karish. I'm Dan. I uh, work in the political consulting field, and I'm happy to be a part of the podcast. Dan Rosenfield, over to you. Yeah, uh, Dan Rosenfield, also in the political consulting sphere. Um, colleagues with Dan, proud uh, deskmates for just a few minutes here and there. So guys, uh, and, and Jenny, obviously, uh, welcome back. Uh, still, still holding it down in Texas, correct? Correct. I feel a lot safer here, honestly. Um, it seems like Greg Abbott is just the king of Corona right now, like in the best way possible. Like he's really handling it like a champ. So, um, to be here, it feels great. Wow, king of Corona. That is that is a, a moniker that I'm not sure anybody wanted now. But yeah, Texas is, is very interesting, obviously. I think, you know, and, and Dan Rosenfield, obviously, you can also speak to this as a Texas A&M Aggie. Texas kind of does things a, a little bit differently. They do it their own way. Uh, from your experience, you know, Jenny and Dan, what has Texas been doing differently or, or perhaps better if you're going to call Greg Abbott the king of Corona? You know, Jenny, what do you, what do you think that he's done differently that has distinguished him in this environment. Right. Well, I think one of the biggest things is that he's lifted a lot of regulations that um, allow for um, immediate care of patients. Um, That would be, you know, having um, licenses to practice uh, medicine in other states. Um, You're allowed to come into the state of Texas and practice uh, medicine, even if your license was, you know, in the state of Arizona or Alabama what have you. A lot of those types of restrictions, they've also been very um, efficient with testing. They've gotten tests here very quickly. Um, and I believe now the drive-through testing sites are open and um, moving with, um, unfortunately, a lot of people being tested. But I hear that um, the majority of people who are tested are not positive for the virus. I think in Texas, you know, what the challenge is, is... Um... Uh, you know, the counties and the municipalities are very strong. So uh, each one of them is, is having their own rules and, and own regulations. You know, for example, um, my hometown of Collin County um, is resisting a lot of these uh, state home orders, instituting state home orders, while all the surrounding counties, Dallas County, Tarrant County, um, they are instituting heavy shelter in place state home orders, um, complete with enforcement and, and uh, funding. Um, and that's making things really, really challenging, I, I think, uh, for Governor Abbott and at the state level. So, um, you know, we Texans, we, we, we love our independence. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, I think uh, Governor Abbott's got to come in there and, and, and lay down the law uh, for all of us crazy, crazy Texans. Dan Karish, to your, uh, you know, to off of, of Dan Rosenfield's point, do you think it's better to adopt a kind of an approach that best fits that particular community? Or is it better to go, you know, to avoid a patchwork and just go with one uniform policy? It's almost always better, in my opinion, to go with one uniform policy. But when you look at each community and when you look at each state, the demographics play a huge role. And we look at, you know, one of the reasons why Italy is so disproportionately affected by the coronavirus is because their population is significantly older than a lot of other countries. And that's something that we can see in a lot of different locales within the United States. It's it's great to have a top-down organized approach but every community, every state is slightly different. And being able to have the governors and the 
county board members and the mayors who have their own boots on the ground, who know best what their communities need and what the population is like there, I think should overtake that. And I think the approach of giving more power and giving more oversight to the local levels is is critical in this in this crisis. Something that Jenny and I have talked about is that it really seems that the governors and local level officials really were the kind of the front line, obviously, and were the first ones to really act on the coronavirus. Their you know administration was a little bit behind on this, and so it was left up to the local officials, like governors, mayors, and things like that. And they really seem like they've been doing a. a pretty great job i think as far as being reactive obviously there are things we could have been doing in terms of being more reactive and being even better but i think certainly they they have uh, answered the call i think a trend that you're seeing uh, especially in the cities is these formation of these uh, emergency preparedness and homeland security departments that weren't there you know more than a couple years ago um you know even at, at the city level you're seeing more and more every city has an emergency preparedness center now um you know and part of that could be this idea that the federal government, um, you know, may not, whatever your opinion is, may not always be there to provide funding and support. So these cities um, are instituting, um, you know, more of these these ways to react to major uh, pandemics, disasters, anything like that. So speaking to reaction and speaking to also kind of policy that we were talking about in terms of uniform versus patchwork, a very important piece of policy uh, just came through this past week with the passage of a $2.2 trillion bill that is going to uh, help provide relief to everyday Americans and also small and large corporations, um, small business, large corporations. This is a huge bill, very tough to unpack, so we're going to go around and kind of get just opening thoughts on kind of the bill, and then we'll get more into you know what you think the key takeaways are. But Jenny, we'll we'll start with you. Obviously, two point two trillion dollars—that is a massive bill. Some people are referring to this as a stimulus bill. I think it's more of an economic rescue package. It is a bridge that is going to get us until you know the next thing. It's not designed to pump more money into the economy, but. You know, your opening thoughts just kind of on the bill uh, as it stands. This is a huge bill, um, and I think it needed to be passed as soon as possible. Um, Of course, you know, if you listen to the arguments on the House floor on Friday, um, you would see that there was a consensus that, no, it's not a perfect bill. And not every piece of um, every partisan puzzle was put into that. But I think it was amazing that it unanimously passed. Um, and you know, that it, it was also, I'm, I'm sorry, that it unanimously passed in the, in the Senate, um, and then it overwhelmingly passed in the House. Um, you know, there was some pushback from libertarians. Um, we saw that with, uh, Congressman, uh, Massey. Um, but overall it looked like there was, um, general consensus that this would, um, this would go towards giving money to the American people. Um, And I think right now, like the plan is um, for individual Americans to get up to $1,200. And that's obviously based on like a $75,000 and below annual income. Um, And there's also for households um, a a larger um, amount. I can't remember. I don't know if you can recall. Um, uh, But the biggest issue was that uh, there was millions of dollars that were put towards the John F. Kennedy Center for the Arts um, in D.C. And a lot of, you know, Democrats were arguing 
that that would be um, for the workers there. But then I just saw in the free beacon that they told their hourly workers that they couldn't pay them hours after um, that passed. So I haven't gotten a chance to read the bill. It's, I believe, over 800 pages. Um, but, you know, there are pieces in there that um, came from all sides. People are going to lay off workers regardless of whether or not they got money in this bill. I think your point about whether or not the John F. Look, I, I love the Kennedy Center. I think they're fantastic, and I love the performances and the shows uh, that they put on. I think their, you know, their role as a cultural organization in bringing different cultures and art to the D.C. area is incredibly important for what they do. Now, whether it deserved to be in this bill, Jenny, as you said, I think is absolutely valid and up for debate. This is not the time or place to put in pet projects that really didn't have anything to do with that. So I, I do take your point there, although I I, I think we're, we're going to see a lot of corporations get money off of this, and they're still going to lay off employees too. So regardless of whether you get money isn't exactly tied to, uh, to this, although there are some stipulations that say that businesses are going to have to keep most of their employees. I think we're definitely going to see small businesses, as well as large corporations, layoff workers. Dan Rosenfield, we'll move it over to you. Initial thoughts on the bill. You know, th- th- at the end of the day, as uh, as libertarian-minded, I think I may be, um, there was going to have to be a point that, uh, you know, the government would have had to get involved. Um, unfortunately, you know, something that, that I uh, was reading about um, was this idea of how different levels of funding uh, were given to different states. But, you know, s- uh, states, for example, or excuse me, not states, the District of Columbia, for example, um, got a much lower uh, per capita payment um, than other states, um, it, it, despite it having, uh, you know, a higher concentration of people, uh, despite it having, you know, at the time that this bill passed, more coronavirus cases. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, I think that the stimulus bill, as, as well intended as it was, um, it, it got a lot too uh, meddled as it went through the political process. Um so, you know, and unfortunately it became a partisan issue um, and, and you know, I don't think there was really a good standard uh, from the get-go of, of how we were looking at how these, how stimulus was being passed on to different states as well as passed on to individual Americans. Um, although I won't complain about a check. I'm with you, Dan Rosenfield. $1,200 is, is sounding pretty good to, to you, me, and a lot of other Americans right now as far as the individuals and as Jenny said, households. Uh, families will get more. Uh, Dan Karish, your initial thoughts on this bill? Yeah, I want to go back to something that Jenny said, which is that the final uh, stimulus bill ended up being about 880 pages. The March 23rd version of the House Appropriations Bill was 1,404 pages long. I mean, you want to talk about the tremendous amount of pork that's just packed into these bills. It underscores the inefficiency that is the House of Representatives, that is the Senate right now, that our members of Congress are unable to fully grasp what is needed at hand. You look at maybe one of the premium sectors of the economy or one of the prime areas that is in need of assistance, and that's the supply chain sector. We're looking at the need of transporting medications, transporting the N95 masks, even doctors throughout the country at a rapid pace. The March 23rd version of the bill had a significant bailout for the Postal Service, Almost all of that was cut in the final uh, coronavirus stimulus bill, and that's critical when you think about being able to transport these these masks and medicines, the integral role that the Postal Service, for example, plays. And I think that putting these items into the original draft uh, that the Democrats circulated 
you could see some of the ulterior motives or some of what their agenda was when you're looking at election funding so that there can be more early voting and more mail-in ballots, which typically are more Democratic uh, objectives. More Democrats tend to vote early uh, and vote by mail than Republicans. You can see that there's different objectives and it speaks to the pork and the inefficiencies in the system. Part of that, we look at, you know, you talked about Democratic kind of objectives. And I think obviously the, the large corporate bailout fund uh, which is about $550 billion or somewhere around the $500 billion mark. That was certainly, uh, I know, uh, a, a, a Republican objective, something that they certainly uh, held to, and that the Democrats didn't really get much on. It seemed like their priorities went elsewhere to different places, like getting more money for unemployment insurance and other things like that. It's interesting, uh, Dan Karras, that you mentioned the Postal Service and the money for that because of you talk about mail-in ballots and you talk about early voting – but for a lot of these primaries now, which will be conducted either without poll workers or with different things like that, this actually really will have an effect, uh, the Postal Service's health and well-being on democracy, if we think about it that way, with all of the different primaries that are affected that have been pushed back, as well as you know, even potentially all the way down to the general election if the Postal Service doesn't just have money to deliver these masks and things that are really critical, but also in terms of these ballots. I'll stay with you, Dan, as far as as this goes. You know, any change, you know, you, you talked about the inefficiency. You talked about the bureaucracy. It seemed like they really couldn't just put your bare necessities in this bill. They had to stuff it full of other things. Any changes that you would have made to the bill as far as the stripped down Version, do you think that this bill will accomplish what they set out to do? Well, I think that it's a first step in what's probably going to be a series of further stimulus bills. I think that $2 trillion is a significant amount that's going to raise taxes tremendously. But ultimately, I think that members of Congress are going to be forced to create another stimulus bill. And we're seeing that this is, I believe, phase three of the economic rejuvenation plan. There's probably going to be a phase four and five in it as well that's going to be another untold billions, if not trillions of dollars, that eventually taxpayers are going to have to foot the bill on. There's no clear plan right now that I've seen from any member of Congress of how this is going to affect what's rapidly turning into a debt crisis in this country that's really putting the United States at a comparative disadvantage to a lot of other countries. I think that while stripping this down and getting rid of a lot of the, as I mentioned, pork in this bill does help with the debt crisis, there's a long way to go. Um, in terms of making sure that we put the critical elements in these bills so that really people get the help that they need in this time. That's kind of exactly why I refer to this more as an economic rescue bill than a stimulus bill, because I think the stimulus, which we saw after the 2008, you know, kind of economic collapse was really more to rejuvenate the economy. I feel like this is just a measure to bridge the gap to prevent an absolute and utter economic collapse. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, you see a lot of these Midwest and Rust Belt towns that have never fully recovered from the Great Recession. You look at towns in Wisconsin, for example, Janesville, which is where uh, the former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, is from. They used to have a GM factory there. They used to have a Parker Penn factory there. And now they don't have either of those. They've been outsourced or, or shuttered. And you're looking at as these towns, these small mid-America towns that, you know, many New England elites and even the West Coast uh folks view as kind of flyover country are still in this economic hole that they need to recover from. Now, all of a sudden, we saw a 30% decline in the markets in a matter of weeks. And, you know, 401ks are being are just hemorrhaging, and we're seeing businesses struggling to recover right now. When you look at these compounding factors, uh, there is a lot more that that can be done. 
Dan Rosenfield, moving that over to you as far as what more can be done. What do you think? What more can be done? More money? No. Um, so I, I one thing that I actually, it kind of didn't bother me, but just an interesting thing was this uh, emphasis on the bill on, on both student loans and retirement accounts, um, which I think were just very highly politicized. It's like out of all the... Um, you know, so many things are being impacted by uh, COVID and, and uh, what's going on. Um, and I don't know if, if those specific programs, uh, those specific parts of the American economy were um, the best way to address them. So, you know, for example, um, in student loans, the federal government has already waived um, what is it, a couple months of, of, of payments um, for um, loan borrowers. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if this is really... Um, best strategy. I think more money should have been put into um, these disaster loans, these microgrant loans um, that are really impacting the bread and butter of America, that are really impacting your mom and pop shops, um, that are paying their taxes, that are trying to uh, revitalize different parts of the American economy. Jenny, we, we talked to uh, you and I about the small businesses and, and especially restaurants and, you know, doing different things like buying gift cards to just, you know, give them a, a small kind of influx of of cash while also being able to then uh, use that later on. What are you continuing to see down in uh, down in Houston as far as, you know, what Dan is saying in terms of the way that these local businesses are being affected? Yeah, I think a lot of them at this point are kind of shutting down. I don't think that the delivery um, the delivery systems are really keeping them afloat. Unfortunately, I think people are still scared to bring in like foreign objects into their house as crazy as that sounds, but I don't know, um, how long they're going to be able to keep operations going. And it's going to be weird too, because after this, you're going to see, Oh, you know, maybe all of these things will reopen. But I mean, at this point, it's, it's a question of, will they even be able to reopen? Like if you're buying a gift card, I know this sounds really, you know, um, negative, but if you're buying a gift card, are you going to be able to use that one day? Because uh, you don't know if this restaurant's going to be able to reopen. There are a lot of things that they're going to be behind on, um, including rent. A lot of uh, landlords, you know, are actually giving some relief um, to uh, businesses, but um, a lot aren't. So is that going to um, change things in the long run after this is all over? That's a great point. I mean, one of the one of the key things during the credit crunch and the, the Great Recession that we had was the amount of people that were defaulting on on not just loans and obviously their you know their mortgages and other things like that, which just led to to worse and worse problems throughout the economy. Not to mention, obviously, people losing their their homes. So, as we go through this, obviously now you know Jenny, you know we we talked about this a little bit before the podcast. Uh, the president now we're we're around. I think what uh, day. You know, we're around that, you know, 15 days to stop the spread, but we continue to see more and more cases. Uh, the, the deaths have, have started to pile up. If you look at the official count, and as, as we all kind of talked about before the, the podcast started, you have to put an asterisk by China because you, you can't really, you know, trust uh, exactly the, the reporting that is coming out of there from the Chinese government. In terms of what we're looking at, I think it's fair to say, uh, and, and we'll go around, that it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think we're still on that track. But 15 days to stop the spread, do you feel like more people are taking this as seriously as they should compared to where you see a lot of people, oh, I'm not so sure. It's, you know, have you looked at what the flu does every year? I think we're, as a nation, in a position where we're really taking this much, much, much more seriously. 
the majority of people are taking it seriously because they have to. There's really not much um, you can go out and do these days, which is the biggest issue, is going out in public, um, assembling in groups. Although I did see that someone in New Jersey threw a party with like over 40 people and um, they got in huge trouble. The police totally busted that. But, um, you know, that's mostly with young people. We're seeing um, they're still kind of gathering and getting together um, despite some of the restrictions. Of course, you can't just um, enforce that kind of um, that kind of you know, restriction, you can't have the police going door to door. Um, You know, there are some countries that are doing that. Um, And, you know, in Israel right now, for example, if you're coming from a foreign country, you are forced to show proof of your quarantine, and the police will check on you every day. Um, And if you're living, um, if you're staying at home, um, you're not allowed to go uh, basically past your driveway. Um, unless you need to say go to the pharmacy or go to the grocery store, this is what I'm hearing from people in Israel. Um, but like you said, now we are uh, number one in world cases. Although it's um, a little suspect, I'm very suspicious because of uh, China and what they're saying now. They're saying that they've basically, basically, keyword, eradicated the uh, the disease in uh, Wuhan. Um, and even in the outside areas in the province, um, which is weird because at the same time, they're now, uh, they started to lift restrictions, but now they're shutting down movie theaters and um, now they're, st- they're closing their borders. Um, there are some weird things going on there that I think we need to follow. Their number hasn't changed very much in weeks um, that I find kind of weird. Um, based on all of these actions they're taking. This epidemic is, I think, really unique because this is the first major disaster where our generation is um, on the front lines and has the opportunity to make a difference um, because our friends are these new nurses, new doctors. Um, you know, our generation is responsible, legally, medically, everything responsible for this this gener- uh, for this epidemic. You know, the generation before us um, they were responsible for, for kind of responding to 9-11. You got the generation before us, they were the ones who were enlisting in the military immediately after uh, 9-11 or, um, you know, uh, becoming involved somehow in American politics. And now our generation, right, now we're the ones that are responsible for kind of helping to run either small businesses or, or recently uh, in the hospitals or, um, you know, the the the, the um, rank and file people in America's businesses that are seeing this impact and responsible for for helping our communities, um, and also you know, um, 9/11 um, really impacted everyone. But this specific epidemic, um, you know, young people, there's a certain responsibility that we have that society is right now expecting us to help kind of facilitate this social media, um, the content and, and um, you know, take care of our neighbors and be community leaders. And that's something that no other thing in society before uh, our generation, generation, whatever we are, millennials has, uh, that we've been responsible for. That's a really interesting point that you make, Dan Rosenfield. I, I want to actually, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with you here for a second because I think you make a, a very interesting point in talking about these very key events, 9-11 and the Great Recession, I think, were, were, were all, you know, kind of very, you know, 
mid to mid to late 20s you know we're talking about these are generational events that impacted obviously the united states and also the world but these events had a profound impact on our generation specifically we are a generation that really was formed by 9-11 and the Great Recession. And these are key foundational events in terms of, I think, the way that a lot of people view the world. Do you think that this event here, the coronavirus pandemic, will also be one of those prisms through which our generation uh, grows, evolves, and, and continues to lead? I think, unfortunately, there's so much that we don't know. Um, and I think uh, it wasn't so much the specific event, but it's how are we going to respond? So in the months and years following, um, how are the events and the organizations that we lead and gather, how are they going to evolve and change? So many organizations now revolve around what happened on September 11, 2001. Um, just the, the mindset and now it's gonna be, how are the organizations and the mindset um, of our generation going to be impacted not specifically from COVID-19, but the months and years following. So, Well, evolving and adapting as far as business practices, you know, we're, we're seeing obviously a lot more people working from home using things like, you know, Zoom or Skype or Google Hangouts, different things like that as far as uh, ways of, of communicating and doing business. Perhaps we'll see international travel diminish a little bit less in terms of those conferences where maybe you'll see that we don't have to do as many of those that we can kind of stay here. Um, speaking of response to this and the way that businesses respond, Dan Karish, I want to ask you uh, about the president and his performance. The president, as, as Jenny and I have talked about numerous times on the podcast, has said things you know, through these task force meetings or press conferences, which I think are, are really a substitute now for the rallies that he used to give and where he can kind of take people to task and, and call people out or, or do what he wants up there, while also the problem of him giving out information that is either wrong or has to be walked back or needs to be adjusted. Um, but we look at the, 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 the polls right now in terms of his job performance and, and approval ratings, and, and the president is by most marks in terms of the approval in the polls. His job performance is going up. So as far as, and I know this is a tough question to put to you, Dan, but I'll ask, as far as things that you think the president has done incredibly well and things that you think he could do better, what do you think he's done well and what do you think he can improve on? No, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I think exactly to your point that that the new press conferences that President Trump is holding are proxies for his rallies that he used to hold where you'd see him fill stadiums of 100,000 people and really be able to say exactly what he wanted to say right down to all of his talking points. And that's exactly how he's using these press conferences. I think what he's doing well is that he's being accessible. And when you get FaceTime with the American public, that's something that instills a lot of confidence that regardless of how you feel about President Trump, whether you're a supporter, whether you're never Trumper, whether you um, don't support him at all, seeing his face up there is something that instills confidence and says, hey, we have a leader who's at least talking with experts in the field and they're working to best create a solution. What I think he hasn't done well is communicate how much he is using his team around him. He has taken a lot of personal credit uh, for the improvements that have been made for a lot of the the decisions that have been made in terms of quarantines, in terms of how are they going to get respirators and masks to different hospitals. But really, part of showing strong leadership is showing that you know how to surround yourself with the right people who are experts in the field who can best inform your decision. 
I wanted to actually jump back too to a point that uh, Dan Rosenfield mentioned about the Great Recession and about how all of these organizations came up after the Great Recession and September 11th. You know, you see two of probably the largest organizations to come up from the Great Recession, especially were Uber and Airbnb. Uber, of course, now is becoming almost instrumental to what's happening where you're taking Uber instead of taking public transportation or using Uber Eats to get food to you. We might not see the same thing now. And I think that is very concerning that we won't be able to see the creativity in new business development during this crisis. What we're seeing is rather than we're in 2008 and 2009, people could still go about their everyday lives generally. And these organizations are uh, came about to support the gig economy where people needed money to make ends meet. Now people need money to make ends meet, but they're staying inside. They're kind of retreating into a fortress of solitude. And we're seeing this rise of escapism where now we're promoting these kind of detrimental factors on society, whether they're video game usage, uh, isolationism. We're not allowing people to get involved in community organizations, churches, synagogues, whatever you want to be a part of. And I think that when we come out on the other side of this, and we will come out on the other side of this, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, as a society, we're going to feel more isolated and less uh, joined together at the end of this. I think that certainly could be the case, Dan. I, I am I'm more hopeful that I think having been away from people for so long and being away from those groups, I think on the one hand, we could see that now our, our norm of being isolated becomes just that, more of a norm, and that we retreat to what now has become our new normal. But I could also see a kind of a wave the other way around of people saying, you know what, this is something that I took for granted, or maybe that they want to be more social now and appreciate what they had have gone, you know, kind of this, this amount of time with losing. I, I think, you know, the concerts and the festivals and all these things of people being social and going out and doing all these other things, I think that will return more to normal. But I'm interested to see, as you said, some of the innovation, because American innovation, people will be able to create educational tools for people if they are uh, don't have internet access or different things like that, um, to where the inequality of you know rural versus urban or things like that in terms of giving people a, a good access to ways to get education for homeschool, different kind of things like that. I think that we could see maybe in those sectors, as well as what you talked about, home entertainment and ways to entertain yourselves at home. So I, I think that would be a very, very interesting thing to see. I uh, want to get into our, our uplifting story of the week uh, before we then dive back into final thoughts uh, for the podcast. So we have a couple of these. Uh, one is New York and in London. We've had hotel owners, the uh, owner of the Four Seasons in New York City has basically said, if you are a doctor, nurse, somebody like that working in the hospitals in New York, our room's free to you. Come here, you'll stay, you know, you won't have to pay a dime. We will take care of you and let you rest and regenerate in our hotel. And the Four Seasons, obviously a very, very nice hotel. They'll take care of them as far as food and all these other things. So I thought that was really incredible. Uh, London in the UK doing the same thing with NHS, uh, allowing uh, people to stay in hotels uh, for free of charge for, uh, for medical staff. So I thought that was really great allowing them because some of these people have long commutes back to where they're from after working these just incredibly long, incredibly long shifts. And the other story comes to us from the Bay Area. There is a restaurant called Tootsie's, which uh, I have to imagine was influenced by the uh, by the name of the movie. I don't know which one came first, but uh, Tootsie's in uh, in the Bay Area near Stanford 
uh, they have this is a restaurant and they basically created a program called adopt a doc or nurse and so by doing that you can basically cater it for entire uh, health departments across the the Bay Area so they've actually been able to prepare over 2,000 meals uh, for different uh, departments across the Bay Area basically people now buying a ton of meals uh, the owner actually said that they are now busier than if they had just kind of been normal conditions. So people are really flocking to this to buy meals and cater for different health departments and making sure that they're able to get food amidst this coronavirus pandemic. So it's really great to see things like that that are kind of uplifting, people taking care of each other in their community and rallying around one another. So we will go final thoughts for the week. Uh, Dan Karish, we will start with you as far as final thoughts on the week that was and thoughts on the week now ahead of us. Well, I think what these uplifting stories even tell us is that despite the pessimism, despite all the, the fears that we as a country and we as a society are incredibly resilient. And I think that's something that we have shown throughout this, that even though we become isolated, we still find ways to band together and work together. You know, uh, just the other the other day, I had someone slip under my door a note that said, hi, I'm one of your neighbors. If you ever need anything, here's my number. You can call me or text me at any point. And that's something that I think is incredibly positive, that as we go looking backward from feeling isolated, moving forward of how we can rely on each other and how we can form these interconnected uh, webs, I think that's that's incredibly powerful. But I also think moving forward, something to watch and something to keep an eye on is going to be uh, how the governors, both in the Midwest and uh, looking specifically at J.B. Pritzker in Illinois and in the uh, tri-state area, how each of them respond, how they battle with their own uh, rising death tolls and the rising testing rates. I think that's something that, as we see, I think New York has slowly started to get toward the downswing on the backside of the curve. If we can learn the lessons moving forward of what each of these hot spots have gone through, what has worked and what hasn't worked, I think that will help end the coronavirus pandemic a lot faster in the United States. Something very interesting that you mentioned there, Dan, is, you know, we have obviously these hotspots in these different areas, but we're also now seeing new hotspots rise up and we're seeing Detroit and New Orleans. New Orleans is, is getting pretty bad. So uh, also very interesting to see how we have the coronavirus. Generally, it seemed more kind of focused on the coast when you had kind of San Francisco and L.A. and New York. Now we're going to be very interesting to see, does it move to the middle in more places like Texas? You were talking about, you know, Illinois and, and, uh, and Michigan. So great stuff. Uh, over there from uh, from you. Dan Rosenfield, final thoughts on the week that was and the week to come. The week that was, uh, you know, thankfully my Wi-Fi uh, was intact pretty much the whole week. So uh, so, so no issues there. But um, I, I think kind of two um, trends that we'll definitely see in the coming weeks um, is this bridge between the medical community and the normal civilian divide. Um, you know, I think there used to be this idea that a doctor was this, uh, like, a, you know, amazing status symbol. And, um, you know, there, there was this certain uh, highfalutin regarding to a doctor. And, and you know, we're, I think, going to see the people um, that we would typically see as uh, disconnected from our society as more connected. And I think it really uh, shows a lot about, um, you know, this time this week and as we see every single day is the importance of relationships um and you know 
how we are both developing relationships, keeping relationships alive virtually, um, trying to make the most of the relationships that we have um, within our homes right now. Um, you know, right now my, my relationships are uh, with my roommates. It's like, what? Why? I would have never um, become so close. But, you know, I think w this virus makes us really focus and pay attention to, um, you know, who we're, we're constantly uh, keeping in touch with and making sure that we're checking in with. Um, you know, sometimes it may get a little annoying. People are checking in. Hey, how are you? How, you know, are you stocked up? Do you have enough toilet paper? Which, you know, thank God I do. We were all worried. I got the good stuff because I go to Safeway. Um, it's just really making us reflect on um, the importance and the value of the relationships that are in each and every one of our lives. Dan, you'd also mentioned the supply chain and the importance of, you know, people that are drivers and, and people that are transporting needed materials as well as uh, food producers and people like that. And I saw a sign in a store window. Uh, there was a picture of it. it basically said that grocery store workers and doctors and nurses are now more important than, you know, kind of athletes and celebrities and, and musicians and all of these other people. And so I think there's maybe, I hope, more of an appreciation, as you said, Dan Rosenfield, for the people that are providing these incredible, you know, services and just basically heroes by going to work and providing these things that we need every day. Jenny, we will finish it off with you. Final thoughts here on, uh, on the week that was and the week to come. You know, as much as it seems like we're stuck at home and it's been a while, um, you know, a lot has been getting better um, and we've banded together in kind of unconventional ways and we found ways to connect with people. Um, and I think that's incredible. I also am excited because, you know, this week um, we're going to hear an update, I think, we're going to have some restrictions lifted in some states. I think some are going to get um, a, a little heavier. Um, but I think for the most part, there's going to be a new strategy that will kind of ease us back into normal life. I'm also excited to hear about the care um, that's going to be increasing on, on the two different coasts. Um, we have the Naval uh, Floating Hospitals, Mercy and Comfort. Um, that's going to be really exciting. I know the president, um, you know, saluted, uh, I believe it was um, Comfort yesterday um, on its way to New York. Uh, I also, uh, just like a happy story I wanted to share this week, I spoke to a bakery owner in Rochester, New York, who's making donuts with Dr. Fauci's face on them. And I thought that was so incredible. And he was so excited. Um, and, and he just said, everyone's really happy to have, you know, this person as their hero. I think Dr. Burks as well is an incredible woman um, and deserves the same recognition. Um, and they've been working diligently on this issue and they're experts in their field and they truly know how to handle a pandemic situation. Um, they know from expert research um, and, and they're advising the president on uh, how to to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Um, and I just think that a lot of people are seeing them as their heroes. And I think Rochester, New York too, this area is one of the really big hot spots in New York, which is the highest number of cases in the U.S. Um, so I think if there's anything 
uh, that can bring them hope. It's it's amazing to see. No doubt about it. And obviously, I think I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. As far as more, you know, what I'm looking forward to seeing is more testing, so we can have more of an accurate number and representation of just how many people are infected with coronavirus. But I'm I'm glad that we have people like Dr. Fauci, people uh, like Dr. Burks, and leaders in the community that are continuing to work incredibly hard on cures, treatments, and testing to make sure that we can get through this as quickly, but also more importantly, as safely as possible. For Noah Niederhofer, Jenny Tayer, Dan Karish, Dan Rosenfield, what a special podcast it has been today. Thank you all, and we will catch you all next time on Polite Politics.